It's very difficult to set out to make a good life, but we can all usually create a good day. And if we could put thousands of good days together, then we would have created a good life. Welcome to the Wellbeing Champions podcast, brought to you by Loon Base. My name is Aaron. Uh, my name is Tom. This is the Wellbeing Champions podcast, where we bring you pearls of wisdom from the best and brightest in the wellbeing world. We aim to share knowledge and learn from others on how to enable people to truly work and live well. Today's guest is Claire Potter. Claire is a best-selling author and her Little Blighters books are all about positive parenting. My recent favourite is the Keeping the Little Blighters Busy book, which I would recommend for anyone as essential lockdown reading. And Claire is also a fussy eating consultant, giving one-to-one advice and tailored support on children's nutritional habits. She's written for The Guardian, Huffington Post, The Green Parent and other publications. And it's great to have Claire with us. So Claire, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hello. So we, we like to start each episode with our fast five warm-up questions. So okay. whenever you're ready. So first one, what's your favorite book? Oh, The Road to Sata, which is, I lived in Japan for a few years, and it's about a guy who walked from the very top of Japan to the bottom of Japan and the things that happened to him on the way. And I love it. That's great. Take that on board. Well, we were in a recession, but I believe we're maybe not anymore, thankfully, but I think we're skirting with one. So to get out of a recession, people say you have to spend. So this is a question about purchases. So uh, what would you say is your top purchase in the last year that's given you the most happiness? Ooh. Um, being quite new to this area um, and near to the Lake District, I bought a 3D map of the Lake District. So all the mountains are all stick out, you know, in scale. And all the, the whole family love it. I kind of think we, look, we all look at it every day and sort of look at where we've walked and where we want to walk. And, yeah, oh, good great. purchase. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, does it have the Wainwrights? Uh, are they highlighted? I think they're no, quite it doesn't highlight them. No, no, no. Uh, I think that's definitely a yeah. I've, I've seen quite a few people. That's very on trend is to do the Wainwrights. Yeah, and try and do them in the year. Well, I actually hate walking up mountains. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a flat walker, but I, I like to go to the Lake District and do the around the mountains, in between them. Great. And do you have any unusual habits or any absurd hobbies that you love to do? Um, I don't. Oh, I don't. No, if I do, but I did used to be a baton twirler uh, when I was a teenager, and I can still baton twirl very, very well, actually. So I do occasionally get my baton out. (laughs) (laughs) On the theme of kind of desert island discs, if you were to live in isolation on a desert planet, what three things would you take with you? Well, I think the three things that I definitely need in life is one, my enamel teapot, because I I like the whole ritual of pouring tea, Um, my hot glue gun, Hot glue guns are just fantastic. They kind of solve everything, really. I've even, I hate sewing, so I even use it. Instead of sewing clothes, I'll just put a bit of hot glue on. Um, And fairy lights. Fairy lights just make the whole world better, I think. Hmm. What's your go-to tea? Yorkshire. Yorkshire tea. Good, strong, regular (laughs) tea, yeah. And the final one of the Fast Five, if you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere in the world with anything on it, so essentially getting the message out to millions or even billions, what would you say and why? Hmm. Well, my favourite quote, and I can't actually remember where I saw it, but it's stuck in my head, is something along the lines of, it's, 
It's very difficult to set out to make a good life, but we can all usually create a good day. And if we could put thousands of good days together, then we would have created a good life. And I really like that because I think that it, I like to treat each day as a really precious unit. And even if I'm having a really rubbish day, to think, no, I, what pleasure could I get out of this day? So that when I go to bed, I know that that day was worth something because um, I'll never get it back again, you know? Oh, I love it. I love that. So, yeah, to kind of start from the first book, which I believe is Keeping the Little Blighters Busy. Yep. Um, could you tell us a bit more about the origin story and where that book came from? Yeah. So when I had my first child, who is a boy, he was quite difficult when he was little in the sense that he was really physical and he wanted to be outdoors all the time. So it's quite difficult to think up ways to entertain him, you know, if it was raining or you couldn't get out. You know, I'd, I'd be the only parent who there'd be a thunderstorm and I'd be out walking in the thunderstorm with him when I'd see all these other kids cosily inside playing with toys and he just, he wouldn't have any of that. It, he would literally, if we weren't out by 10 a.m. in the morning, he'd go and hammer on the door. So it kind of forced me to have to think up kind of really quite unusual outside-the-box ways to entertain him, not by buying him stuff, you know, he wasn't interested in toys, but just by exploring the real world in slightly different ways. And that kind of just became a way of doing things, and I just think up more and more ideas. So, for example, when he was about... Uh, six, seven, we were in the supermarket and he had a friend with him and I said, okay, you've got five pounds, 15 minutes, you've got to get the meal and it's got to have three courses, there must be some veg or salad, no ready meals, off you go. Or another time, uh, he was always complaining about the way I dressed, he didn't think it was uh, conventional enough, he said I didn't look like the other mummies. So one day um, I took him to Primark and I said, okay, you're going to choose my outfit. <laughs> you can dress me in whatever you like and I'm going to buy it and wear it for the rest of the day. And he absolutely loved this and he made me look ridiculous. In his head, he thought I looked wonderful and like the other mummies. To me, I, I thought I looked awful. So yeah, so then, you know, I thought, God, I've got a lot of these ideas. So I pitched the idea for this book keeping the little blighters busy to a publisher. And the first publisher said, no, thank you. Second publisher, I was really lucky. They said yes, and that publisher was Bloomsbury. So I was really lucky. Um, and, yeah, the book was born. Oh, that's amazing. Wow. And are they, are they all original ideas or of these like things that you've kind of pulled from inspiration elsewhere? I, I really struggle to find <laughs> one, one new activity... <laughs> Yeah, they are all, all original ideas. I kind of just take normal life and twist it a bit. So, for example, you know, a really simple one, like you're giving your toddler a bath, and just to make it a bit more fun, you throw in a load of ice cubes, you know, and kids love playing with ice, you know, watching it melt in their hands. So it's just like thinking of all the normal things in the day, you know, going to the supermarket, going to a clothes shop, having a bath, having dinner, and how you can twist that and make it a bit more interesting. Yeah, I really like the go for a walk, but you can only turn left mm -hmm. and go for a walk, roll the dice, and the dice determines yes, who chooses which way or whether you go. you go left, right, straight ahead. And again, like yeah. I say, turning a very, you know, something you're trying to do every day 
and can easily get mundane into something that the kids suddenly yeah, absolutely it, exactly. can't wait for. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, you might just be walking around the block, but if you take a dice with you and let that control which way you go, it immediately becomes more interesting. Okay. And how old is your son now, if you don't mind me? Uh, he is 21. Okay. Thinking back from your son's perspective, does he have a favourite memory or recollection of one activity? Or is it one activity that's a real standout to him that he brings uh-huh. up? Oh, so I think the one that he remembers the most is um, the shopkeeper's treasure hunt, where I set up a treasure hunt where each clue was given to a shopkeeper in a shop in our local town, and each clue led to the next shop. So I went round in advance and gave all the clues to the shopkeepers, and they kind of said, oh, yeah, and tucked them behind their till. And then he would go in and say, oh, have you got a clue for me? And then he'd end up having a little chat with them, and it made it really human and, you know, more fun than just a regular treasure hunt. Yeah, he, he still talks about that one. Right. And wow. did the the Little Blighter's name, was that something you had an idea for this series or was that the publisher's suggestion? Or? Yeah, the, uh, the Little Blighter's idea for the titles was the publisher's idea. I was actually initially very against that. I felt like keeping the Little Blighters busy sounded like you wanted your kids out of your hair and, you know, for goodness sake, just get on and do something. And I and the book really isn't that. It's very much about, you know, spending time with your kids and um, nurturing them. Yeah, I think the subheading of 50 refreshingly different things to do with your kids before they're 12 and three quarters. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's, a, that's more... Yeah, that counteracts the Blighters yeah. bit, yes. Uh-huh. That was my idea, that bit. <laughs> <laughs> and the 12 and three quarters, is that a nod to Harry Potter almost? No, not no. at all. Because um, <laughs> things pre-Harry Potter, right, yeah, yes. Yeah. Um, I just thought it sounded kind of oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Lying around at Bloomsbury. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, well. <laughs> yeah, to kind of go into your creative process, how, how have you managed to stay creative during lockdown and have you found working from home um I think I haven't found being creative any more difficult during lockdown if anything easier because life is so restricted and limiting it kind of forces you to think up things to do and um ideas working at home I work at home most of the time anyway so that hasn't been very different for me can you explain the story behind the 13 challenges before 13 article? Mm-hmm. So when my son was 13, we were sitting one evening watching that um, t- old TV series called Roots about slavery. I don't know if you've ever seen it or heard of it. And there's a there's a scene quite near the beginning of that where they take all the 12-year-old boys, 13-year-old boys off to the forest for an initiation ceremony and you know they have to do horrible things like well I don't know butcher pigs or (laughs) I can't remember the details but there's a bit where they circumcise them as well just with like a really sharp knife and I was watching my son's face watching this and he was just utterly intrigued with the whole thing and it just I just thought we don't really have any way we mark the turning of a, a child, you know, from child to teenager. 13 seems quite a significant age in many ways. You know, he was certainly changing. He was asking uh, to go to football matches on his own or go off cycling for miles and not have a babysitter and all kinds of things. So he was kind of pushing for independence. 
So I just thought, had this idea, okay, well, let's do a kind of modern initiation ceremony. Let's test you. Let's see if you're ready for all these sort of independent things you're asking for, but make it fun too. So I sat down and I thought up 13 things and I tried to sort of spread them over different areas of life, you know, like social or cooking, um, travel. And, um, and then I'd put the first challenge in a coloured envelope and kind of gave it to him, challenge number one. And then he'd open that and do that one. And when he'd done that one, then he'd get the next one. And so the first challenge was get on a train, get off at the 13th stop, which he had no idea where that would be. I knew. I'd worked <laughs> it out. Then go to a cafe or a restaurant on your own and choose the 13th thing off the menu and eat that, whatever it is. Then I'd given him £13.13. .13. Then go and buy yourself a whole outfit with £13.13. .13. Doesn't matter if it's from charity shops or a new shop, whatever, but that's what you do. And he absolutely loved this. He just, you know, getting on a train on his own for the first time in itself was a big thing for him. And he just he just felt all grown up. And I was, as I waved him off, I was thinking, uh-oh, am I ever going to see him again? Have I done the right thing? Is this all going to backfire on me? Um, and other challenges included things like cook a three-course meal using recipes only from page 13 of any of our recipe books, learn uh, 13 bar blues as opposed to 12 bar blues and perform it in public in front of quite a big audience. Um, yeah, all kinds of things. It was great fun, but he also learned a lot and he had to push himself. Yeah. Oh, what a great challenge. Yeah, what a great challenge. Yeah, no, I love that for him. That's, uh, yeah. I could take it on board now, I think. I could take that. I'll, yeah. take that. I'll, take, <laughs> I'll, I'll get on a train and do the 13th stop yeah. and see where it takes me. I know, I'd quite <laughs> like to do it myself, I think. Kind of moving on to the Fussy Eating mm -hmm. books and the consultancy side of things. Did you launch that with the book or did that come after the fact? Or when did you kind the of go into consultancy that? came after the book, quite a long time after the book. Um Relatively recently, actually. It's my best-selling book of the three books um, and have had so much positive feedback. And I just thought it would be really good to help people one-to-one -one because sometimes people read the book and they put it into action and they're just it's just plain sailing. But others feel, um, say, I've read your book, I love the book, but I'm really nervous about putting it into action. You know, I'm worried that my kid's going to kick up a big fuss if I start serving them food, which is different to what they're used to. So, yeah. So, uh, well, according to my mother, I was one of the worst fuss eaters that, that, that's ever existed. I think a diet of, of uh, cucumber, potato and cheese was my upbringing until, yeah, 10. Um, wow. And my daughter, unfortunately, seems to be following along the same track. She is a very fussy eater. From your insights, what are the origins of fussy eating and how does that come about often in childhood? Mm. Well, the kind of common sort of perception seems to be that, you know, kids are just fussy eaters in general. There's some worse than others, but it's just the kind of thing you've got to put up with as a parent and wait for them to grow out of it. Um, but, but actually, that isn't quite the case at all so of course I think we're all born um they know you know scientists know we're all born with a few foods that we're kind of instinctively averse to I for example I don't eat oranges I don't particularly not like them I just know I don't want to eat them but apart from that we're kind of happy to eat everything fussiness usually starts when a child's about two somewhere between 18 months two and a half um and up till then parents will often say oh you know up my, when they're a baby, they ate everything, you know, and now I just don't know what's happened and I'm really upset. 
Um, and what happens is when they hit the age of two, that's like the terrible twos, you know, the toddler years, they, children start to want control, um, you know, about everything, what colour cup they drink their water out of, you know, what shoes they wear, whether they have the coat on or not. And they quickly realise that food is the absolutely easiest area of life for them to get control because it's going to push your buttons so hard. They've got that one little hole in their mouth and only they can decide what goes in and what doesn't. So they realise that fussy eating is going to get them huge amounts of control. You know, instead you'll serve them a meal, they don't eat it, so you jump up and make them a bowl of cereal or you'll cut the white off their egg, you know, just heaps and heaps of control. And also loads and loads of attention. You know, eat your peas, like... Aren't you going to have your sausages? You like sausages. They're really nice. You know, there's non-stop commentary at the table trying to get your child to eat. So the child's just sitting there with a little twinkle in their eyes thinking, this is just brilliant. You know, when I don't eat something, I get so much power and so much attention. And that's how fussy eating starts. The problem then is it becomes the norm. The parents stop serving a variety of foods. They just serve the foods that the child says they want. And then the other foods will become very unfamiliar to the child and they're not comfortable with them. And the child genuinely starts to believe then that they don't like those other foods. And it becomes very difficult to um, get them to eat them. I think it was really funny when I read your book and some of the phrases that you highlight as never say, never say, never say. We say word for word yes. <laughs> to our kids. Yes. So it really makes you realise, like, oh, actually, we've fallen into some really bad habits. Yeah. And... Yeah, it, yeah. there's some really good tips on how to combat that, how to do the opposite, how to yes. change the routine. I, I think it would be good to throw maybe some common scenarios out and, and just see if anything comes as um, as an advice or Yeah, well, I, I think the key thing, you know, is, you know, it's, it's perfectly understandable why, you know, as you've just said, you're saying all the things that you shouldn't say, you know. Yeah. Um, we're... We want our children to eat, you know. We worry if they don't eat and we want them to have good nutrition. And so we naturally, instinctively, if they're not eating, we encourage them to eat. Whilst it might get a few more mouthfuls in them or get a bit of broccoli in them at that meal and maybe the next meal and maybe the next meal, that kind of endless encouragement and pressure on your child to eat makes things worse. It makes things much, much worse because it gives them the attention, the power, and they will push against it. Um, and whilst, for example, you might say, look, if you eat your broccoli, I'll give you three chocolate buttons afterwards. It works. They eat their broccoli, perhaps. But the message you're giving them is broccoli is a real chore to eat. It's not good, you know, but you have to eat it. And the chocolate buttons are great. You know, you're elevating those sweet foods over the food you actually want them to eat. So it just makes things way, way worse. So the very best thing you can do is serve the food and then say nothing more about it. And I mean nothing. Talk about other things at the table, you know. Um, just jump straight in with talking about anything else. So a, a really good game to play, actually, when you first sit down at the table, which you can sort of play with two-and-a-half-year-olds upwards, is called high-low buffalo. And you, you sit down, you all say you're high, you go around the table, and that's your best bit of 
the day. Then you'll say your low, which is your worst bit of the day. And then you'll say your buffalo, which is anything else you want to say about your day. So straight away, the focus is off the food. The food is just there. Food is good. We eat food. We don't need to talk about it or push them to eat it. And we're talking about other stuff. It takes away all the power, all the attention around eating or not eating food. And it simulates what we what, an ad, what adults would do. Oh, how was your day, darling? You know, um, but you're doing it in quite a contrived way with a game like that. I really like that yeah. idea. What's your experience with making the kids' plate look different, look, you know, making little shapes? And we, we got given a gift that has a face, a blank face, and you put the spaghetti as the hair and the, you know, mm. salad as the beard and kind of making it fun or is that doing the opposite and like you say making it different from what mm. everyone else is eating um yeah so i tell parents to be very very cautious about doing things like that children are of smart you know if you make um the rice serve the rice in the shape of a rabbit then they're like she really want or he really want me to eat this you know and again you're giving them handing the power over to them so i'm not going to eat it so I, I, I tell parents to avoid making food fun in a contrived way like that. However, lots of food is naturally fun. Uh, so for example, let's say you're serving rice. You could ask your kid to help you with that in the kitchen and uh, get them to put the rice into a small bowl and then tip it upside down onto the plate. It's almost like making a rice sandcastle. Um, so that rice comes out in a kind of perfect bowl shaped, and kids really enjoy doing that. So you haven't served the rice to the child in the shape of a rabbit and said, look, isn't this fun? You know, doesn't this look good? Oh, please eat it, please eat it. <laughs> You've got them involved. They've, you know, if you put rice in a bowl and turn it upside down, it comes out looking good, but you're not trying to make it look good. You've just involved them and kind of done something that... Uh, yeah, so are you a big advocate of getting them involved in the cooking process? Yeah. It certainly helps. It's not the solution to fussy eating. The solution to fussy eating is serving the food and not talking about it and keep serving them a variety of food, whether they eat it or not. They're the two key things. But involving them in the kitchen, in the process of cooking or preparing food, certainly helps because um, children are much more likely to eat something that they feel ownership of. You do need to be careful how you cook with your children. We tend to micromanage when we cook with our children. No, not like that. Oh, let mummy finish it off for you. Um, and then the child doesn't feel any ownership. It kind of undermines that. And so it, they do need to feel quite empowered in the kitchen. You need to be careful how you do it. Do you find a lot of your clients, or just from your experience in general, can maybe manage their own habits at home and get into a good routine at home? But then you've got grandparents might have another routine, nursery has another say. How would you kind of recommend people dealing with these different yeah, that's routines. a really good question. What I often find with my clients is that they put the new approach into action really well, but then the child will go to the grandparents, you know, three times a week and they do complete opposite and feed them chocolate and, you know, encourage them to eat their peas, etc. cetera. Um, so I always recommend that the client speaks to the grandparents whoever else looks after their child and ask them to follow the same approach. They don't always buy into it. You know, particularly the older generation have quite different views 
often. And then with nursery, I always recommend that they speak to the nursery staff and ask them also to follow the same approach to just serve the child their snack or lunch and not encourage them to eat it, leave it up to them. And another thing is that when parents pick their child up from nursery, the staff usually feed back to them what they ate in detail in front of the child. And the child is standing there going, whoa, these people so care whether I eat or not. And again, handing so much power over to them. So I always tell them to ask the nursery just to email them, write it down or do it when the child isn't there. Well, that's a great tip. Yeah, that's exactly what we've experienced. This, yeah, this, this in, in detail handover. Um, yeah. So another common scenario that we struggle with would be, you know, you've got a healthy, varied main meal in front of you and our daughter, Isabel, would have a few mouthfuls most. And obviously, if you follow the technique of don't talk about it, don't mention it, it's not brought up, there's other distracting conversation at play. Um, but then if she, half an hour later, there's still very minimal eating, what, would you have any tips about, you know, if there is a sweet, you know, say if there's a bowl of fruit to come later, does that come out or not? Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you recommend following a routine or do you withhold a sweet or is it in those circumstances? Mm. Do you have any tips for that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the first thing you should never withhold pudding if that's what you're going to have um, because um, you, you don't want any punitive feelings around food whatsoever and you don't want to use pudding as a reward either. If yeah. you eat that, you can have that because that's pressure to eat too. Um, so you should always serve just something really simple like yogurt or fruit if if you're in the habit of having pudding, yeah. um, wh- wh- however much they've eaten, and it should come out straight away. And then second of all, you know, if you're really concerned, like my child really has eaten almost nothing and I don't want them to go to bed hungry, it is okay to serve a bedtime snack. It's better if you can avoid that, but if you really are worried about that, but you must do it in a particular way. So the child can't say, oh, I'm hungry, you can have a bowl of cereal, and you're, okay, darling, here you are. You have to be in control of that snack um, because you don't want them to see it as an alternative to eating their dinner. They've got to see it as a very separate thing that you're in control of. So you would leave a a big gap between dinner and that bedtime snack, at least 45 minutes. Um, You would label it a snack rather than, you know, just something else you got because you didn't eat your dinner. And you would decide what that is, not them. It's not, they can't have the, you know, if if they get to control and choose and pick what they prefer, you cannot expand their diet. And so you just kind of rotate each night between three quite simple things like um, banana, some plain toast, non-sugary cereal, and you would, Um, you would choose not them. Oh, yeah, great. I'm taking notes. (laughs) (laughs) And I believe you have a new book coming out in January called Which Food Will You Choose? Um, are you happy to talk more about that and tell us again where where the origin of that book came from? Yeah, I'm really excited about this one because this is my first uh, children's picture book, you know, that you might read them at bedtime. So this is a book to get young children curious about food and more open-minded and adventurous. The story is that there's a mummy and she's got a a daughter and a son, and she's about to cook dinner, but she's in a really bad mood, and she's like, oh, I can't find anything I want to cook. The whole kitchen's full of beige food, you know, chicken nuggets, sausages, crisps. Oh. So she says to the kids, get your shoes and coats on, we're going to the supermarket to play a game. And they're like, play a game? Can't play a game in the supermarket, mummy. She's like, yep, wait and see. 
So when they get to the supermarket, she asks them to choose three foods, anything they like, but they have to be red. Off they go and they choose. And then you see them go home and what they do with those foods and how they eat them. And then the next day, Tuesday, that was Monday, Tuesday, she takes them to the supermarket again to play the game. They choose three yellow foods. The next day, three green foods, three orange foods, three purple foods. But each time they go to the shop to choose the colour foods, you see a whole page of that colour foods, so a whole page of red foods, a whole page of orange foods. And you're asked, the reader, which three foods would you choose and how would you eat them? So the idea is that let's say you've got a kid and they, they won't eat tomato, they never eat tomato, but they might choose the tomato from the page when they're reading the book. They may not, but they might, and they don't have to. It's up to them what they choose. And even that simple step, is they're buying into the idea of perhaps eating a tomato. And then the great thing is you can then play this game with your kids in the supermarket in real life, Take, get them to choose three foods of a certain colour, take them home, prepare them with them. Without any pressure to eat them, that would backfire entirely. It has to be up to them. But this game is really effective, and it's one that is used by paediatric dietitians with fussy eaters. So it's taking that game and then making it into a story. Oh, that sounds amazing. Oh, I can't wait to, uh, to to see it and read it to my kids. It sounds great. Yeah, I might, might go play. Might go play this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm collecting. I'm collecting uh, kids in an hour's time. At the moment, our little go-to supermarket is little. Because mm-hmm. they have the mini kids trolleys. Ah, oh, so, uh, yes. So, so again, yeah, there's an element of you could have yeah three foods, three yes. foods in your trolley, and you're in control of that. Would be so. perfect for that. Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, the baskets are a bit big for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a bit heavy. <laughs> yeah, a bit awkward. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh-huh. And when's it out? It's out on January the fourteenth. Yeah, and how can I buy a copy? You could buy on Amazon, Bloomsbury website, Waterstones website. I would say bookshop, but I don't know if it'll be open. Be still open yeah. yeah. No, that's great. And yeah, in closing, is there anywhere where people can go to see more of your work or, or where they can go to connect and, and reach out if they want to find out more about the fussy eating mm-hmm. side of things? Yeah, so my fussy eating website is stopfussyeating.uk. Great, and I'll link to that in the show notes, which listeners can find at loombase.com. I'll link to all the books and, and everything we've spoke about today. Um, so no, thank you so much for for joining us, Claire. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, really insightful. Taking home a lot. <laughs> Got some homework to do. <laughs> this podcast is brought to you by Loonbase. Loonbase is an all-in-one wellbeing platform for your workplace. Listeners of this podcast can get an exclusive deal. Just simply go to loonbase.com forward slash champions. That's loonbase.com forward slash champions to find out more.